motherfucker. Hi, moms. Welcome back to A Simple Pod, wherein we are in this limited series. We are diving deeply into the film A Simple Favor, directed by Paul Feig, which came out 2018. By this point, you have heard our introductory episode. You know what you're getting into. You have seen the movie. If you haven't, that's a choice you're making, and I can't stop you. This week, we're talking about genre. It's a noir. It's a thriller. It's a little bit of everything. Emily Yoshida's Vulture Review has this quote. This occurred to me while watching A Simple Favor, Paul Feig's salty, soapy little whodunit, and while trying to decide what qualified to, qualifier to attach to the noir categorization, mommy noir, pastel noir, I realized I had it all wrong. Despite its sunny Connecticut suburb setting, it's a straight ahead noir in its chatty, perverse, popcorny original recipe. As always, I'm Christina Tucker, contributing writer to Autostraddle, homosexual about the internet, and my two absolutely sickening co-hosts are about to introduce themselves. Let's let them do it. Yes, hello. I am Jordan Cruciola, uh, a, a writer a writer about the internet as well, and now launched into my next iteration, my next phase and ascent, uh, independent producer, producer for hire, uh, trying hopefully to usher in as many mommy noirs into our lives as possible. I now have a fresh item on my list of mandates, so I'm <laughs> thrilled about that. I'm thrilled. And I'm Alana Bennett, a bisexual about the internet, who is also a culture writer and screenwriter. You simply love to see it. You yep. simply love to see this combination <laughs> of, of brains and talent. I'm excited to dive into the genre of this movie because I feel like it's kind of, uh, I don't want to say contentious because I don't know if I've seen like fights on the internet about it, right. but I do feel like there was a certain, like this movie was marketed as like very thriller mm -hmm. in the vein of a, like a gone girl and i think the ways that it diverted from that image confused some people when they were sitting down in the theater it mm -hmm. threw some people off and i feel like that kind of served the marketing served the film interestingly sometimes uh, detrimentally mm -hmm. because people didn't know quite what to expect and because paul feig really did just mix up his his favorite parts of genre stuff in this mm -hmm. Yeah, I think as like, you know, famous homosexuals and bisexuals on the internet, we were like really primed to understand that marketing campaign yes. in a way that I don't know that people who are less online would yes. like immediately key into. And like, less, I think that was part of the, the issue with the marketing and the success yeah. of the marketing, depending less on who online, you want your audience. Right, right. Yeah, less online and less primed for the queerness, both textual and genre wise camp the campy wise yes campy wise I, is not a word but to <laughs> um, well not with that attitude it's not <laughs> how campy wise is a word thank you but i do feel like it is the um there's a i'll, I'll get into this more later but there's like a brightness to this movie and a campiness that mm -hmm. it leans into mm -hmm. the, the genre has always had but mm -hmm. that this one kind of t brings a lot of stuff to the surface and is more baldly like in your face about it. I, it's having fun. Yeah, it's it's having fun, and I, I think a, an aspect of it that that I, I think 
as you said, being very online and also being queer, there is a receptiveness to the sort of the sort of the packaging itself in an aesthetic becomes, I think, a draw, especially for like dialed in queer folks and also uh, women who love women in suits. I think that's a real easy <laughs> sell. Like you said, there it was. The mileage may vary on whether or not this marketing was a huge success or kind of like a strange dead on arrival situation because I was so compelled by the marketing. It made me so excited, but I understand that selling this perhaps to my sister and mom living in my small Oregon town, they weren't having the same innate reaction of like, you know, choke me Blake Lively that Stan Twitter was going to be having. And what I like so much about what this movie delivers is that it takes those, you know, what Paul Feig is making his milkshake out of here is those classic thrillers, those Hitchcock films that he wants to Mm -hmm. have, he wants to make homage to. But at the same time, it also feels like it's incorporating aspects of sort of like a millennial, maybe Gen X above us upbringing, that soapy made for TV salaciousness that comes from like a Lifetime movie. And I view this as almost like the peak form of what a Lifetime movie would be. This is the the peak form of the ways in which that like pokes it sort of my my baser instincts, but also adds like the credibility and intrigue of the skill of filmmaking of a Paul Feig. And I get my delicious milkshake out of that. Yeah, I feel like that you could categorize this movie as the same or a similar genre as the show You, where it yes. is very Scary. much, it is thriller. It mm-hmm. is taking you on this ride. But at the same time, it is very, very funny. And it's very, it knows itself and it's witty and it's winking mm-hmm. at you the entire time. And I feel like that, and I mean, it took people a while to find you also. Yeah. And so they're kind of and it built started for this on cult lifetime. following. And it started, yes, and it started on, on Lifetime. lifetime. Yeah. Like it's yeah. very much of that. And kind of going into that, like, like, like we're going to try to break down some of the uh, tropes that this movie falls into and also the mm-hmm. ways that it the ways that it plays into those tropes and the ways that it deviates from them. And one of those is very much criminality in white women, Mm -hmm. uh, which a film days piece by Jenny Holtz uh, looked at. Uh, She looked at Gone Girl, Big Little Lies, and A Simple Favor and talked Mm -hmm. a bit about the things that specifically white women get away with in stories involving glossy crimes. Mm -hmm. So uh, Jenny wrote... Crime dramas have always been able to draw a crowd, but mixing in an attractive white woman as the criminal brings in an even bigger audience. The allure of this storyline lies in the intrigue created by cracks in the seemingly perfect structure of white womanhood. I feel like that sentence is, or those two sentences are the entire basis of the Lifetime Network. Yes. <laughs> and, and also the basis of, of A Simple Favor. Yeah, I think Lifetime just heard you read that sentence and just like started writing you a check and they were like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that, Jeff. You will be good. I would, for the record, no. love to write a Lifetime movie. <laughs> um, I oh, think it is interesting also thinking about crime dramas and especially thinking about crime dramas that are not about white women and also issues of marketing. I'm thinking of the similar classic Widows mm, that yes. is a crime drama that similarly struggled to market itself and like yes. no yeah. one really knew what to do with it, but it wasn't playing with those white woman tropes in the same way that A Simple mm-hmm. Favor is. Mm-hmm. So it seems like, it feels like A Simple Favor latched onto its own audience a little faster than Widows did because Widows was kind of all over the place in terms of marketing. Like I was like, mm-hmm. is this a heist? Is this a love story? What's Liam Neeson doing here? 
What right. was that kiss? The kiss was <laughs> a hate crime in and of itself. <laughs> um, and I, it's interesting that like, and obviously like Steve McQueen had something larger he wanted to say than mm -hmm. just like, this is what a heist looks like. He wanted to talk about gentrification and politics mm -hmm. and all of these other things. Um, so it's interesting thinking about like, the, the cult classic that, you know, Widows feels like it immediately turned into because so yes. few people saw it. And like the way that A Simple Favor was just like, oh, this fucking rocks. We're all having the best time. Mm -hmm. Let's go see it again. Well, and I think that I actually, now that I'm thinking about it, now that you bring that up, it feels like a big commonality in what was not advertised about these movies, but is actually the core of each A Simple Favor and Widows is the female, the relationships at the center of it and how these mm -hmm. women come together from disparate circumstances to become this unit dependent on one another. And they like, they're, they're not fast friends, but they find a vulnerability and kinship in one another that is very hard won. And you don't know the idea of marketing friendships, relationships, the struggle of connection between women, we don't know how to do that. So it was yeah. like, you know what we'll sell here? Blake Lively walking in the rain and say, guess what? Paul Feig made a thriller. And with Widows, it's like, guess what? A heist. And yeah. you can't just be like, you know what? This is going to be a really interesting and entertaining way to see these women connecting with each other in the most extreme of circumstances. What? <laughs> yeah, but people don't know also, what to do with that. And then also, though, I, that, that's, I, Widows is such an interesting parallel with this now that I'm thinking about it, with Elizabeth Debicki's character is absolutely weaponized mm -hmm. for that exact thing. It is that the, the seemingly perfect structure of white womanhood that is deployed on behalf of the whole to go get things that would be harder for Viola Davis and Cynthia Rivo's characters to go to a gun show and not right. be noticed and just get a firearm. Yeah, well, I mean, having a six foot two, like, stunning woman walk in anyway sure. is going to be like a head turner, but she's not going to garner the same possible negative reactions. Right, like, she's, her whole story is learning, like, Mm -hmm. This is how I can use my, yeah. like, we weaponize this white womanhood that I've had and yeah. that I haven't really known what to do with. Mm -hmm. While a simple favor is like, both of these women already kind of know what they're doing. Yeah. They're just, right. in, I think in the case of specifically Annie Hendricks' character, she's a little more reticent to, like, admit that she knows what she's doing until yes. she really has to. While mm -hmm. Blake spends the entire film being like, no, of course I know what I'm doing. Yeah. In my suits. <laughs> this is a coming yeah. of age film. This is a coming of age film for for uh, for Stephanie. <laughs> She's like, I am coming into my criminality. Mm -hmm. and, and we see this exact like I, I, the the focus is so easy to put on Emily in this conversation of that weaponization. But it's fascinating watching that coming of age with or with mm -hmm. Emily's character. It's fascinating to watch it with Stephanie when she starts realizing how to work her like talk to the manager mm -hmm. part of her personality. Yes to like get information that people should not just be handing over on the phone to some random person. That is absolutely, it's just taking that school teacher, that white cute school teacher aspect of it and yes. being like, oh, I'm going to leverage this and I'm going to manipulate people and get what I want on my fucking mom blog. Yeah, it very much feels like this movie is, you know, Stephanie and Emily like embody these certain types of white women. Uh, and I, Sorry, I'm stumbling over reading my own stuff. <laughs> reading? A famous challenge. Uh, but yeah, Stephanie and Emily are both really powerful and trafficked archetypes of white women and specifically mm -hmm. a dangerous type of white women. And we'll mm -hmm. kind of get into in a second, like the way that kind of plays into the film fatale of it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and also in terms of as specifically white women, 
how they operate within this movie you know not all of it is probably authorial intent because i feel like a lot of Mm -hmm. white people just treat it as default and treat it as Mm -hmm. uh given but and all this movie was made primarily by white people but it's always there like (laughs) it's always active even Mm -hmm. if it was not intended by the creators to be and i feel like that's really interesting in this one because i feel like it you know i feel like it's safe to say that stephanie is a karen even Mm -hmm. though she definitely it would pretend to be woke and pretend to be accepting of everybody the way that she does react to everything shows (laughs) her innate karenness and the way that emily just moves about the world shows a uh, a comfort and a confidence that mm-hmm. does feel very of Blake Lively, which is of, mm-hmm. as we all know, a very privileged white woman perspective, even though her character is queer and is complicated mm-hmm. and like all of this stuff, like it all funnels into something interesting that I think does uh, do something fascinating with the genre. Yeah, I do mm-hmm. think an alternate title for this movie could be We Need to Talk About Karen. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and could just be like, yeah, it's just an exploration of these two types of Karens. And I think your point about it not specifically meaning to think about these kinds of this tropes that they're playing with white womanhood. Um, mm-hmm. Because like, you know, when you think about something like Stephen Queen directing Widows, like that's a black man directing this woman, yeah. to, like this white woman to like this performance. And like that, yeah in and of itself has entirely different connotations as like a primarily white film cast Mm -hmm. crew writing staff directing these two white women to these two specific performances Mm -hmm. it's like an interesting Mm -hmm. way to be like oh no like sometimes people know what they're doing and get a really interesting result and sometimes even when you don't mean to these are the results that you can get which is also why we all have you know jobs writing on the internet about culture (laughs) my my favorite like uh my favorite like accidental commentary on white feminism is the moment where Emily is like, you don't have to apologize. Don't apologize for fucking anything. And like, not that's not entirely accidental because I think they were making commentary on feminism and the ways that people use that language and weaponize that Mm -hmm. language just to do whatever the hell they want. But on white feminism specifically, I feel like that is often where that is used the most where it is turned into girl power and into empowerment when no one's actually thinking about what you're empowering Mm -hmm. and why and like for what why and like who benefits what and if it's actually giving you any power or not uh and like what who takes that and runs with it don't say you're sorry you don't need to do that you don't need to apologize it's a fucked up female habit you don't need to be sorry for anything ever that's that's true that's great advice thank you it's it's don't apologize for anything and sheet cake your problems away kind of situation like an, <laughs> yes. an extension of just like irresponsible irresponsibly empowering yourself to not be involved in the solution right. depending on how yes. you're gonna aim you're gonna aim that sort of like no fucks given sort of attitude yes now mm-hmm. that you said the sheet cake your problems away it makes me think that this movie is really about the relationship between an amy dunn from gone girl and a Kathy comic. <laughs> I just feel like that really. I mean, somebody has some major ass. Yeah. yeah. She was like, oh, yeah, chocolate, chocolate martinis. I've had that. <laughs> can really see oh, that God. happening. <laughs> this is me. Your drink? I need a martini. Oh, uh, 
Yeah, I like martinis. I haven't had one in a, a long time. They're good, though. I had one that was, like, mostly chocolate, and I was like, alcohol and chocolate. <laughs> Mom life. So we really want to dive into what genre this movie is. Mm-hmm. And there's not really a neat answer because it does play by so many genre rules. And at the same mm-hmm. time, it does it in a way that for the hardcore fans of the genre may feel a little uncomfy because it's mm-hmm. dressed up in a way that we don't always see it. It's not the same tone as all of those Say it's not the same tone as a widow's. It's not the same tone as mm-hmm. uh, diabolique, which mm-hmm. Stephanie drops. She's like, "Are you diaboliking me?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you going to diabolique Rebecca? me? Yeah. <laughs> or uh, a girl with a girl, girl with the train, a girl on the train, <laughs> a girl located near a train, a girl located adjacent <laughs> to a train. <laughs> <laughs> a movie I think we can all exist, admit does not exist. No one saw that film. Like this movie is very much a thriller and a noir, but we want to talk about what it does with that. So one of the tropes, for example, is uh, in so one of the tropes, for example, of a noir is characters haunted by something in their past. And both mm-hmm. Stephanie and Emily have this in a simple favor. Emily, as we all very much know, fucked her brother. <laughs> Which I love that as a character backstory that's haunting her. Emily Stephanie, fucked her brother. Right? Which Stephanie, Stephanie, Stephanie fucked her yes. brother. Yeah, yes. Stephanie fucked her brother. So both Emma, bo- so both Stephanie and Emily have this. Uh, Stephanie fucked her brother, uh, <laughs> as we all very much are acquainted with, <laughs> which eventually killed both her brother and her husband <laughs> and st- and Emily is running from the law after an act of arson murder in her past and her sister <laughs> comes back to haunt her as the inciting incident for the plot mm-hmm. uh, we also have the femme fatale which is you know we have the femme fatale which you would think is just Emily but we actually have two femme fatales in this movie duking it out which mm-hmm, is the mm-hmm. entire fun part yes <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> the yes, entire fun part <laughs> that's where the fun comes from yeah the ascendance so, of stephanie and her mom blog to femme fatale status mm-hmm. yes yeah how a kathy comic becomes a dangerous criminal <laughs> <laughs> or i don't even know if she's technically a criminal like but how she goes toe-to-toe and takes down mm-hmm. the uh major criminal enterprise of the <laughs> film and how there's always there's this whole history of femme fatales like playing with men throughout mm-hmm. this genre um yeah no that's i i do think it is important that we talk about the role that henry golding plays in this film absolutely because he plays so little of a person like he's just like, this yes. idea of a man yeah. kind of like vaguely drawn in <laughs> which is obviously something i deeply Perfect. support yeah um, tremendous He's basically like a, a, a like a man like a himbo. He's like a professor himbo. Like it's <laughs> yes. you don't really need anything else from him. That's exactly um, right. But it's also just interesting just thinking about like his larger career that that seems to be like just what he does now. It's just yeah. play, like good for him. Handsome right guy that. who doesn't do a whole lot. <laughs> I was standing next to him on the on the patio of a cafe once um, when the park was still oh. open, and I felt like I had entered a yachting advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> he was in like a blue polo, like a blue half button down with like crisp slacks with his beautiful wife. And he had like perfect sunglasses on and his hair was perfect. And he, sh- he radiated a light of his own. And it was just mm-hmm. unbelievable to be standing next to 
such a vessel is that because that's yes. what it felt like and a he vessel really is a for vessel. a lifestyle yeah, yeah, yeah he's he, a perfect he, vessel and in he this very movie. much is a vessel in this he's a vessel to to the life that emily has at the beginning and that stephanie wants yeah. and then and they don't even, they may even make it clear like yeah he's a talented guy but like don't get all jazzed about it he hasn't done anything <laughs> in a long time and like it is just like you it's very unclear for a while like whether he's being used by emily like if he's a part of it and actually active in anything and he's mm-hmm. not he is yeah. just a pawn to these women mm-hmm. gets his feelings a little hurt but that's kind of the fun of it is he's their play toy. Yeah. Like a major element of the femme fatale is ambition. Mm-hmm. And with this movie's two femme fatales, you'd think, like I said, you'd think Emily is the main one because she's the one driving the inciting incident and murdering people. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you look at it through the ambition lens, Stephanie is way more the lead in that regard. And mm-hmm. the femme fatale is about kind of the dangers of female desire mm-hmm. and stephanie wants not only everything emily has but also every but also everything emily is yes you know she wants her husband her house mm-hmm. her clothes her attitude mm-hmm. her unapologetic command of her sexuality mm-hmm. she definitely also wants to have sex with emily <laughs> but she never gets that oh baby you just need someone to love you i have you all you need is a good friend. She yeah. just settles for having sex with her husband and is like, yeah. I guess this is fine, but not really what I was going for. <laughs> and Sean just Close is very down. much like to the wayside. He's just there to comment on whatever we need commented on. And then yeah. kind really of fly love. off into the sunset. I really do. I, I, I really so appreciate about this. I really so appreciate in this movie, the inversion of the diabolique where instead of like, instead of Sean essentially rising from the bathtub at the end and like thwarting these women's plans, these women have been scheming against him the entire time. The, the breadcrumbs are there for maybe Sean knew, maybe he's, he's complicit in this. And then we, we have that for a glimmer, we have that for a moment, but then by the time we get to the end and the loose ends are being, are, are being resolved, it is just underscored repeatedly what a fucking idiot he is. Like, and they're like, I, the moment in this movie when Emily's like, they're around the grave having Emily's perfect martinis. Yes. And she's like, oh, Sean, you can have him. And Stephanie immediately just snaps back. God, I don't want Sean. You fucked up my insurance plan. The authorities won't back down on that. You can have Sean. He's a piece of shit. I don't even want him. I don't want Sean. Like the derision <laughs> on her face and the obviousness with which it would be like, I don't know why you would offer me Sean. I don't want Sean. Because like, he's wanted, not what it's about. No, A, I wanted about. you the entire time, and B, he is hardly a consolation prize. Right. Even the like uh even the epilogue bit at the end where it's like he goes off with the kid and he just writes a children's book and it's like don't care still don't care about him. It's not about him. Like don't don't focus there. I know like, he's he not, didn't he's like, do anything, he's fine. but I do feel like he should have been sent to jail. I just, I don't know yeah, why, so but every time I see that epilogue, I'm like, just, that sucks. That kid's gonna grow up and suck, because his dad sucks. <laughs> the biggest offense, yeah, the biggest offense in this movie is that Henry Golding's character ends up as the chair of the English department at Berkeley, and it's like, you couldn't have sent him to a community college. You couldn't be teaching <laughs> that English at a JC. Hilarious. Yes. I just love how, how little they care about him in terms of like, 
Like, they don't care whether or not he's fucking that assistant. Like, they never really established that even. No. Like, it's not relevant to anything, whether they ever had a threesome with that assistant. No. <laughs> like, like, she walks in and she's like, hey, and then she leaves. And then Stephanie, that, all that serves is for Stephanie to not care about Sean anymore. Like, that's the moment she's like, it's not, it's just not, it's not worth it. I'm going to focus she's on the pretty other She's just looking for any one. reason she can find to just, like, not care about him anymore. And she was like, yeah. oh, yeah, no, uh, another woman walked into your office and spoke to you that seems like enough yeah. better be going <laughs> yeah it, this is about your wife this is about your wife and your current girlfriend that's all that it is like that's like the biggest trope of this movie is one of the big thriller tropes which is women obsessing over each other yeah and that is part of what makes this movie just so it's the i will say it's the it's the bedrock of this entire movie Agreed. Uh, and there are also like there are also smaller ones where it's like one of the tropes is, you know, the unchanged room in the home, mm. you know, in the 1940 Hitchcock film Rebecca, which very much this mm. movie pulls from. Yes. Uh, Mrs. Danvers has left Rebecca's suite of rooms unchanged. And in a simple favorite, Stephanie spending t- some time dressing up in Emily's closet. But then oh, yeah. she Mrs. Danvers delicately folding dead Mrs. DeWinter's yes. underwear is Gay. absolutely Stephanie putting on Emily's clothes. I always used to wait up for her, no matter how late. Sometimes she and Mr. DeWinter didn't come home until dawn. While she was undressing, she'd tell me about the party she'd been to. She knew everyone that mattered. Everyone loved her. Yes! 100%. Yeah, like, that to me is still somehow, like, the most startling and suspenseful moment in the entire... Like, no matter how many times I watch that movie, I'm always like, oh my god! (laughs) what a crazy thing to do and like nothing at this point i've seen it enough that nothing really shocks me about the movie anymore not even (laughs) the famous brother fucker but that moment i'm always like oh that is unsettling how did she do it that's a lot of closet to put back together that's a lot of stuff fast it's an incredible moment yes and like a beautiful taunt she's like i am still here bitch (laughs) it's like her big confirmation of like okay she's here and she's watching and she will beat me up yeah (laughs) i am but the sequel and she is the original yeah it really like they play with the like erotic thriller of it and uh yeah a fun way between them that is that is another thing that that i think i i was so thrilled by when i was first watching this movie is um when when nicole kidman signed her development deal with amazon studios she said she wanted to make more quote sexy date movies that Mm -hmm. were like the erotic thrillers that we saw in the 90s those adult contemporary kind of horror films well we don't really the sort of death of the mid-budget movie has sort of in part contributed Mm -hmm. to doing away with that movies like malice and basic instinct and disclosure sort of like Mm -hmm. this demi more subgenre that happened obsession. in the 90s that she was obsession we only get like kind of samplings of that every now and again and as much as this movie is drawing on those classic thrillers like like the Hitchcock and such and you know your north by northwest your rear window those kinds of treasures it is also pulling from it's updating those in this wonderful way by bringing in that 90s tastiness where it has that kind of like feels a little bit dirty feels Mm -hmm. a little bit like lifetime Mm -hmm. feels a little bit like a soap opera and it's just like put it in my veins so to incorporate like our wonderful sort of old-timey three-piece suit paul feig joint and throw in our like kim basinger with kinky blonde hair Mm -hmm. 
attitude and put that on Blake Lively. Give me, give me Blake Lively as Veronica, Veronica Lake and Kim Basinger. Yes. Yes. An intoxicating combination. Happy camper. Yes. Also, wow. It just must be put onto the record that Nicole Kidman is a stone cold freak. And I love that about her. (laughs) Yes. What a straight up lunatic. I love that. to make a thousand of these movies. I was watching every single one of them. Sexy date night movies. What a straight up loon. God bless you, Nicole. (laughs) So happy we have you on this earth. She's like, I want movies where women are killing other other women over men. Or women are killing men to get to women. These are my sexy date night movies with Keith. No, yeah, no. Nicole Kidman loves those. There are so many movies where she just murders men. <laughs> Practical Magic is not a thriller. I mean, maybe it's a magic thriller a little bit, but like, <laughs> it's not that, but she's still murdering men. Big Little Lies, Big Little Lies and, and A Simple Favor have a very much like one-to-one yeah. situation. Yep. Just Big Little Lies has a little bit more like soul and heart and like wistfulness staring at the ocean whereas <laughs> whereas a simple right. favor is like stilettos look at her, the red bottoms of her shoes like <laughs> but, but like let's talk about that, so go ahead oh no i'm just saying like in that thinking like uh reese Witherspoon's character in big little lies is absolutely the idealized like yes. version of stephanie like that's yeah. what she yeah. needs she's trying to get to you're she's right yes. not quite there yet yeah yeah she's like, one she marriage years away. older Yes. Yeah. And she would 100% go down exactly that path of obsession again, like <laughs> with a woman. <laughs> and I could see her just do it. That's, I think we got Big Little Eyes season three, guys. <laughs> it right out of my mouth. <laughs> we got it. Um, but yeah, let's talk about what makes A Simple Favor different in terms mm-hmm. of genre, because that mm-hmm. is kind of what confuses people a little bit. Uh, my personal theory is that the film's humor is what threw people off because there, it was mm-hmm. marketed or it was pegged by the press as Paul Feig is finally doing a drama. But yeah. that wasn't really how Paul Feig approached it. Right. Like He approached it not that different from how he does any of his movies, which are often genre bends. He did mm-hmm. Ghostbusters, which is action comedy he did the he did spy which is perfect and which is uh you know the spy (laughs) james bond genre but also broad comedy he did bridesmaids which is comedy (laughs) (laughs) but also the heat he did he did uh buddy cop movie Mm -hmm. um like he loves to take like he loves to take some tropes and throw them together and like Mm -hmm. not give in to getting rid of either genre Mm -hmm. so this was really a good fit for him uh yeah he called uh he he said the challenge is that the film has to be a thriller first and foremost you can never try to get a laugh at the expense of the genre where the laughs come from or from playing with the tropes of the genre and also just playing with the character's quirkiness and extreme reaction so Mm -hmm. i feel like that is what it does it's like every like you'll see it in the final monologue that stephanie has yeah, you'll see it in the final monologue that Stephanie has to Emily mm-hmm. where she's finally nailing her and she's mm-hmm. catching her. Like it turns <clears throat> into, like she's villain monologuing basically about how she caught her. Yeah. Or she's hero monologuing basically about how she caught her. And then mm-hmm. it turns into, oh my God, am I actually your best friend? Yeah. Like, and it's like just <laughs> that back and forth for often. a while. Like, I really do mean that. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, it's like I, it's that back and forth. That's what for I was thinking. And- You're not going to kill me. Oh, yeah, I killed my dad and my sister, but I could never kill my husband fucking best friend. Am I really your best friend? You're not just saying that for, you know. No, no, I'm not just saying that at all. 
I get worried that it's just me. I know, sometimes I was worried about that too. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's just, but then that takes the turn that you need for the genre, which is, oh yeah, and actually I, I caught you. Like here's, mm-hmm. like I and won. here's the proof. Here's the yeah. thing. Here's the yeah. genre thing. Like, and both of those things are playing together and it is comedy married with the thriller aspect of it and so for Paul Feig he wanted to pull from Hitchcock and he didn't want the movie to take itself super seriously mm-hmm. uh which I love I feel like he did he did do his own twist on it that feels actually new because and you can tell it's new because it confused people <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 I mean I hate to be like I have to go back to the marketing but <laughs> I do think in, instead of selling it as like Paul Feig is doing his Paul Feig thing to a thriller, selling mm-hmm. it as like, this is going to be a dark drama, mm-hmm. really yeah. just threw people off. And like, yes. we're, and as for me, like a person who was like, I don't really know what this is going to be. I can't imagine it's too serious because all of this looks fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But the first time I laughed in the movie was like the first time that I was like, oh, this movie understands exactly what I want it to be. And like, I'm in good hands. <laughs> but I can see other people being like, the fuck. Yeah, because you're <laughs> That's laughing not what a I came lot. For. Like, you're laughing a lot. Like, think of a Gone Girl. There are moments of humor, and Gone Girl is pretty savvy and witty, and I think mm-hmm. it is funny. Like, the whole cool girl I think monologue, Gone Girl it, is it, hilarious. Yeah, it is hilarious, and it is it has a big sense of humor, but you could not call Gone Girl a, a comedy. It's just yeah. a smart drama. Yeah. And, and it's just, it winks at itself, but it does, it is, A Simple Favor just takes a, a different approach. Like, it, you are laughing consistently, and it is, he's directing it like a comedy mm-hmm. where you are, the laughs are always there. Like when Stephanie is talking to the detective, you know, she's squirming and it's funny. And even <laughs> when, even when there are reveals about what's happening, it's still comedy. Yeah. Right. Like she's still in a dress that is easily six feet too long for her. <laughs> and like, it's just funny to watch her in that scenario. But I do think it's interesting how like audiences are, have been at this point trained to not understand what yes. humor does in a movie. Like yeah, we just, our brains just like cannot, we're like, oh, if we're having fun at this movie, it can't be serious, it can't be thoughtful, uh-huh. it can't have anything to say. Like, mm-hmm. unless I'm just having a fucking bummer of a time, mm-hmm. seeing some <laughs> sad shit, that's all that a smart movie is. And a fun yes. movie, that can be fun, we can laugh, but no, there's nothing greater like to take from it. That's trained into us from like the Oscars of it, where it's like a gone girl could get nominations and could mm-hmm. get like be in there really as a contender mm-hmm. because it feels like a movie that takes itself seriously a simple favor is fundamentally a movie that i think is very very smart in the way that it does form and in the way that it constructs story and character and drama but it's very actively being like please la-, like you're going to laugh like yeah. you, we are positioning it with gloss and comedy that in a way that is not always typical for thrillers or noir movie that is super poppy like it mm-hmm. is of pop culture very much and from the way that it pulls from both of its leads uh celebrity backgrounds yeah and the way that people view both of them to just the soundtrack to the fact that it's french pop that we're going with it's very it's being like this is perky this is winking like we're playing bonnie and clyde and you're we're winking at you know the criminality of these white women like going through their fancy closets and i think because it does rely on it, on gloss and comedy it doesn't feel typical like both like all of these genres love stylish women mm-hmm. but it, a simple favor very much takes a brighter approach both visually and in its storytelling it, which mm-hmm. also i think a key part of this is that 
I love the twists and turns of this movie, but it does not take those the, those approaches in the same way that a typical thriller does. Like it mm-hmm. do, it allows itself to slow down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Beats are more about character and quirk than they are about making you feel super harsh tension. Like mm-hmm. I still feel like pulled along because it's like once you get to the brother fucker scene you're like what are they gonna do <laughs> <laughs> they could do anything <laughs> they it's are really the moment where the doors get like blown open of this movie and you're just like anything is possible <laughs> yeah like, and we get sequences like stephanie infiltrating dennis nyland's office <clears throat> which is directed <sighs> like a broad comedy but mm-hmm. turns into our first huge clue of the movie which i think is a good example of mm. it takes the tropes it does not sacrifice the tropes but it mm-hmm. just presents them in a in a different package and so i think that is what confused people and mm-hmm. that makes the movie a lot of people think that this movie is confused i think this mm-hmm. movie knows exactly what it is okay. yes. it just is putting that in a different package that you're not used to right well and paul feig is such a and i think this is like where you get into sort of like the micro genre that is a paul feig movie mm-hmm. he is so deft at tone switching within his movies and yes. he's he is in, I feel like in at least maybe every, if not almost every Paul Feig movie, there is a moment where some zag happens where you're like, I wasn't fucking ready for that. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it like knocks you off your heels, but then pulls you back to engage you even further. In Bridesmaids, it's the, it's the whole blowout diarrhea scene that culminates in shitting in the street. In The Heat, there is an emergency tracheotomy that happens in that movie where you're like, Jesus Christ, this guy's bleeding from his throat right now. Jesus Christ, oh my God, oh my God, that's a lot of blood. Oh my God, oh Oh my God, there's so much blood. I don't know what I'm doing. You did this. Ah, The ambulance coming. (laughs) And in this movie, it's the the brother fucker where you realize like, oh God, there was something I never would have guessed out of in like, a very grown-up Mad Lib situation that has been put in here that I am, I am, I, it is suddenly congealed with everything around it and it makes sense by virtue of making no sense at all, but I'm thrilled and I'm even more deep in the story than I was before. Yeah, like, think of it this way. It's like, mm. Gone Girl is literally, as far as I remember, I remember it as, like, this very blue-saturated, yeah. very like, blue. Like almost sepia, but blue. I don't know if that has a word. <laughs> no, it, it's called the Ozark effect. It looks exactly it's very, like yeah, it's very, even though the story, like the humor, as we've talked about, of Gone Girl is not super bleak. Mm-hmm. They play, they play and frame the movie as this bleak, yeah. dark tone. Mm-hmm. And this one takes the exact opposite effect. And like, it, it makes you feel not bogged down by it. It like lifts you up with it. Yeah. And not in terms of like, oh, I'm so happy. It, it's just like, it uses campiness instead of that bleakness. And Dower. so because it's campiness that people write it off because mm-hmm. that's so easy to do when it's comedy. Mm-hmm. But that takes so much craft to actually get that story to work within the framework of yeah playing into campiness understanding that's what you're doing mm-hmm. even to the point of like vintage fashion and like the the fact that when i think i'll, I'll get into this way heavier in our costumes episode but the fact <laughs> Ooh, that when, when the big showdown uh between emily and stephanie they both like dress up in these incredible outfits they both like are like she she wears like the most insane ralph lauren suit to go <laughs> face off with stephanie where she's like practically shirtless and like a bow tie with like jewelry around My it and it's God. just like they're just like dripping in this and like meeting in a graveyard with martinis on the graveyard like it's <laughs> that's the campiest thing i've ever heard but it's also it works so well with what this is oh. like yeah it's perfect because it does it it plays with camp 
to get us that tension and to get us the fun because like mm-hmm. the the tension in this is the fun of this it's not like yeah. dragging you into uh basically the story of the patriarchy and <laughs> and abusive relationship right. emotionally abusive relationships in the way <laughs> yeah. that gone girl is mutually abusive relationships but it's it's like no the fun is the fashion and the camp and that and we need that more than we need the tension we want that more than we want the tension and i think that that's okay to prioritize in a movie like this like you Mm -hmm. don't always need to feel like i still feel like not ahead of all of the twists and turns Mm -hmm. which makes me feel the amount of tension i need to see this movie i don't need to feel like upset or like that that (laughs) feeling in the pit of your stomach where you're like and i think also so much of that comes from just like paul feig's inherent respect of women that comes through in his movies Mm -hmm. like it would be so easy to make this movie about making fun of both of them and it is in a way but not because they're women it is because of like the way that they're acting and the way that they're using each other's personas and this desire like it is you can still make fun at women especially white women they'll be fine yeah they'll be fine (laughs) the fact that you can tell that he is doing it from a place that doesn't come from just like derision or hatred mm-hmm. that he's doing it from yeah. a place that's like i actually like am interested and respect this and i understand this concept of like women dressing for women like mm-hmm. not caring about what men are going to see them in whatever outfit like no you put on your best fucking outfit to make mm, right you see your ex-girlfriend question mark uh <laughs> at the stone, where she's supposed to be like that's what you do that's what women do. yeah absolutely and like i think so much of that like also credit to Darcy Bell, who wrote the book, and Jessica Charger, mm-hmm. who wrote the screenplay, because like this was bopping around Hollywood for a while. It was at one place, and then they lost interest, and it was like it was the kind of thing where people didn't, even in script form and book form, people didn't quite know what to do with it. They're like, it's a thriller, but it's funny. Mm-hmm. And, I don't and you know can what see how easily like the wrong director on this yes. project, and like. Someone yeah. who didn't get what this book yes. and screenplay were trying to do would just be like fucking a miserable slog. Yeah, like yes. if this was a Brett Ratner movie. Oh my god. If this was honestly a Darren Aronofsky movie, throw me through the window and let it cut me to ribbons on the way out. Because a oh yes. my god. Yeah, it didn't need to be any of that. And I think it is like Paul Feig has built the like the latter part of his career even back you could even say back to freaks and geeks with linda cardellini mm-hmm. uh who makes an amazing appearance in this movie like he's built so much of his career, like so much of his career off of telling women-centric stories mainly mm-hmm. white women-centric stories but maybe he'll learn but <laughs> he's he's built so much of his career off of women-centric stories that you can tell like you can see that approach here like that mm-hmm. is still very much here like he he works with Katie DePaul on so many of his movies. Like, he works with women writers so much. So he does, like, add his own, you know, he he throws a lot of uh, last-minute lines at people mm-hmm. when they're filming. But, like, he knows how to work with women writers and women characters and costume designers mm-hmm. to really bring out something that feels good mm-hmm. to women viewers, too. Which mm-hmm. all so many male directors do not get <laughs> so thank you paul Feig, and well, if keep learning and doing your thing <laughs> paul we assume you're listening so we just want to yeah thank yes, you, so you have feel to free to contact us please. can't wait to have you on paul can't wait to have you on um and i think like if, in, in talking about ways in which that this 
ways in which that this subverts the the elements of the milkshake that come into it so often um in the noir space in the thriller space that that erotic 90s thriller space that i'm talking about and and in lifetime movies too that i've invoked here so much of that is built on the backs of women being murdered and then yeah, there yeah. being a case or a mystery to be solved that centers around the murder of a woman and that's what we get here but our 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 protagonist antagonist our emily is alive she is in mm-hmm. fact not sacrificed for the story and the woman that does die in this story her 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 wayward twin sister is one that is killed by her own sister in this like fit of familial like like terror and love and unresolved pain and so it is not a woman's life being taken by a man and then there being this sort of patriarchal solution to what has happened and it is also not built on the madness of women this isn't something where a a woman's obsession skews toward this like hag exploitation realm Mm -hmm. or like a scene where you know somebody like a spencer tracy would have to shake a woman back to sense and then (laughs) slap her so she stops screaming or something like that we don't get that we have a sex idiot in (laughs) and we have two women obsessed with one another who are essentially intellectually topping each other throughout this entire movie to prove their mystery solving and mystery spinning supremacy and i remember talking to the director uh sebastian gutierrez when he did uh, a bluebeard tale it's called elizabeth harvest and it starred abby lee and carla gugino and he was really drawing on like their tradition of giallo films and there was a another movie that came out that year um that drew on giallo as well there was a sort of like many parallels but this sort of uh the genre being trotted back out in a very modern context i can think of few genres more historically less favorable to women than mm. giallo horror movies like it is they are they're pretty ornaments and they are meant to be killed and cut apart and meant to be vehicles for a masked killer to come through and stack up a body count but you know what we talked about how the fun of making a movie now in the modern context and having that history behind you is taking the parts you love about it like i was saying earlier and then dressing up and emphasizing the things that are the best while being like you know what i don't need to carry forward with me that misogyny you know what i don't right. need to carry forward with me like stripping women down and leaving them like dead in a field yeah i don't need to do any of that so this movie gets us to a point where the ultimate sort of resolution for our characters, their process of becoming, is being honest with one another about what they mean to each other Mm -hmm. and becoming their most true selves. And those are like, you know, we talked a bit ahead of, you know, Alana formed an amazing outline, everybody, for how we were going to approach this episode. And there's a bit on the bottom about like, what are the stakes of this movie? And for me, the stakes of it are Emily and Stephanie finally being parallel with one another and Mm -hmm. Stephanie not looking up toward Emily and aspiring toward her, but being like, no, we are equals. We are, Uh we will not try to talk each other here. We have realized that we are a (laughs) gang and we are essential. This entire movie is a battle of tops like and and stephanie kind of realizing that she i mean she i think she, she is always one. has been yeah. a top because that's it this is yeah. not to endorse it but to fuck your brother is a bold move every week that we're not endorsing fucking yeah. your brother just like yeah well just just to know just so you know we're not to endorsing your brother it. We're just and then to fuck your best friend's husband on the day of her move. funeral yes she is moves. a top but like in the scene where emily finally confronts her sister where we see that her sister's like oh i thought you were like i know you're the alpha now but yeah and kind of makes fun of her and then the sister like runs off and emily is like i am the alpha now like she is Mm. it is a con this entire thing is a battle of the tops amongst 
like at least three different women yeah. <laughs> like thinking about the, the gone girls and even the like sharp objects mm-hmm. not to target gillian flynn who i i love both of those things <laughs> but like think of gone girl that is it plays into both the unhinged woman which mm-hmm. a, a simple favor does as well mm-hmm. and with but also very much a girl on a train yes and it very much makes you feel the uh the manipulation of that woman and the victimization of a man Mm -hmm. is kind of the end point and like Mm -hmm. you could argue like that is also they kind of face off in the middle especially in the book a little bit more where they're kind of trapped together at the end but it is still again way more focused on a man's point of view than a simple favor is like that's where the fact that sean is barely a person really comes into (laughs) beautiful chef's kiss play (laughs) and in in sharp objects it's very much like women victimizing other women Mm -hmm. yes like no one really wins everybody loses (laughs) and in this one it kind of it does feel like there's uh a very cathartic victory Mm -hmm. and even just that shot of emily in prison at the end like you know she's having her uh, wonderful orange is the new black experience (laughs) which is not to obviously not you know there's a lot to say about the prison system but (laughs) she would she would excel within it (laughs) are you not endorsing the prison system in america we're not endorsing the prison so strange but she is not she is having you know she's topping there as well yeah Yeah. i think one of my favorite parts like when when we think about stakes is that for both of them the stakes are clearly the friendship that they've somehow fucked up managed to create out of this wild situation and that moment where you know they both are like no but you're actually my best friend and it's funny because it's just like one of the funniest things i've ever seen played out in that scenario rarely have i felt more seen on film than that (laughs) and it also does such an interesting job of deflating the tension that the movie has built up because you can tell that they're both like Ooh, we have gone a little far, and <laughs> yeah. if we could, it might be nice to just redo this. Yeah, not yeah. have this scenario happening, but like <laughs> we've committed to this bit. I am wearing a cardigan camera. I have to, you have to go to jail, even if I'm yeah. kind of like ah. If like only we had chatted sooner. Yeah, you know <laughs> Stephanie like kind of wants to just run off with Emily, but she knows that's not what's, what's going to happen. So she has to find a way to talk her way out of the situation. Yes, but they're yeah. both such tops. But also, what I love about that best friends moment is that it also does feel genuine, even yes. though it is very much like a com- comedy beat and like a very much making fun of that thing that women do. Yes. But it also it like it would be so easy for this movie to make it so Emily just was always super condescending and was gross to yeah. Stephanie but it genuinely feels like especially as Stephanie becomes the top that she was born to be yes. Emily has this deep respect for her yeah and like right. and like that's the moment where it's like no it's for this friend and that to see that full to see that full reveal of vulnerability from Emily's character it, from the character of Emily in that moment where we see her kind of wilt. And when, you know, Anna at that point has said like, you know, she's holding a gun up to Sean saying, I loved you. And then she like does her little like shy thing toward Emily where she's like, I loved you too. You don't want to do this. I really do though. <laughs> I loved you. Loved you too. 
And that like creates that like you can see the recognition in Emily in that moment. Like, well, yeah, I, I loved you too. So when they come together in that final, that final face to face and you watch Emily's shoulders kind of fall and she's just really relieved to know that like her best friend also considered her her best friend and that they're on the same page. And you can watch, you cut over to see Sean who's still very much in the thriller that has been set up the entire time. And then really these women are, sud- are suddenly in the Paul Feig female friendship comedy yeah. that has also been happening the entire time, but he's relegated to an entirely different goddamn oh, yeah. movie. He's in a different movie. I think also what we've just uncovered here is that actually underneath it all, the real genre of this movie is the tragic uh, Romeo and Juliet romance. <laughs> Yeah. Where they can never truly be together as they really want to be, but because they have to destroy each other. But yeah. we know what it all really comes back to Shakespeare in the end. <laughs> yeah. It all comes back to the board. <laughs> <laughs> don't. Brotherfucker! This is good. Welcome to our recurring segment about Brotherfucker, where we just talk about how we feel about the fact that Brotherfucker is said and it happens and it's a whole moment in this film. Um, I think this week I'm just feeling really at peace with Brotherfucker in a weird way. <laughs> Settled into it. Yeah, I, I think I've come to respect and understand and really admire the work that Brotherfucker is doing in this movie, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where it brings me, where it brings the viewer, mm-hmm. um, where it brings Anna Kendrick, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, the way that I feel about Brotherfucker this week is I just feel really appreciative of the way that as we've been talking about it really it's peppered in as a you know a little spice to the genre yeah you know when when uh when emily finally realizes that stephanie is winning and that she's recording her in the Mm. climactic moment like her exclamation before she runs out of the building is brother fucker (laughs) (laughs) i just find that so beautiful like she's making sure first of all that her entire audience has now heard that phrase and will now be questioning that's all of this <laughs> yeah yeah and maybe that will now officially be a part of uh stephanie's public image in some way but she, that's just that's just i love that that is genuinely it's an exclamation it's uh it's a sign of affection it mm-hmm. is a fuck you yeah <laughs> it's all of those things it can just be so many things for all of us brother fucker yeah, that, that nickname you really get uh, that you didn't want when it was bestowed upon you, but then it becomes, <laughs> you realize the scope of how endearing it is from everybody and you reluctantly accept tall order to accept brother fucker in a mixed company setting. As you said, that leads to questions. Yeah, um, that, that feels like something that's going to pop up like six months later once they're all over how insane that entire scenario yeah. was. Like Andrew Reynolds is going to be like, Brotherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that? that Greek chorus is definitely yeah. going to be talking about Brotherfucker. Um, I think where I'm at with Brotherfucker this week, given the nature of our conversation about genre, is uh, really appreciating it from that from that very acutely Paul, Paul Feig standpoint of giving us this amazing moment that throws the premise, that throws what's happening into a whole new realm of absurdity. So you understand that at any given moment, he has set a new peak for how weird or ridiculous or silly or crazy one of his movies can get. And you are then sort of under threat for the rest of a movie to be like, are we, is that as high as it was going to go? Or is there going to be something else (laughs) that I have to be on my toes for? And considering a movie that does such a good job 
forcing you to recalibrate your expectations the entire time. I'm really appreciating it as that moment of having you forcing you to recalibrate your expectations for whatever you thought was possible within the framework of this movie (laughs) and making you stay prepared for any escalation somehow to get past incest and brotherfucker that could happen in the remaining minutes of this movie. (laughs) That was beautiful. Now, sweetie, stop. You've just been hit by a car. Don't, don't do this. I'm getting worried about your knees right now. Thank you for joining us in another episode of A Simple Pod. Next time you hear from us, we will be discussing costuming. A delightful topic that I'm sure we will drill down into a very, very specific amount. Um, (laughs) So be prepared for, honestly, a possible three-hour episode on costumes. (laughs) As always, we do not want to manage a social media account for a limited series podcast because that's bonkers, but you can absolutely use the hashtag a simple pod, have conversations. You can follow me on Twitter at C underscore Grace T and you can follow my lovely co-hosts at their own Twitter handles, which they will be telling you right now. And you can find me, Jordan Cruciola, at J-O-R-C-R-U. And you can also find me, I will say, on Patreon, where it will be patreon.com slash Cruciola. And you know what? If you're serious about subscribing, you can look up how to spell my last name because I have bylines (laughs) a a lot of times and you can find that on your own. So thank you. Make them work for Make it, them work to give you money. Yeah, I love that's this. right. That, that's that's the top energy for good we're content. About. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm Alana Bennett. You can find me at at literally Alana Bennett. A L A N N A B E N N E T T. Just remember those double consonants, but not so the many N. double consonants, Alana. All Baby, the that's consonants a brand. are doubled except for the L. <laughs> <laughs> Huh, that is true. I've never thought about it that way. <laughs> Should we As say always, bye, moms? Yeah, we had a good time and, um, you know, bye, moms. Yeah. <laughs> bye, moms. Bye, moms. <laughs>